take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Revelation chapter 5. We will be in verses uh, 1 to 14, kind of, um, specifically uh, 9 through 14, but we'll, we'll take a glance at the whole chapter and, and some of chapter 4 as well. Our sermon title is Weep No More. The key words for our worshipers in training are worthy, kingdom, and salvation, or, or just save, even. In Robert de Boron's Merlin, uh, we read of the, the legendary tale about Arthur, king of England, and the sword in the stone. In Boron's tale, Arthur is, uh, he obtains the British throne by pulling a sword from an anvil sitting atop a stone that appeared in a churchyard on Christmas Eve. Some in Arthurian legend have identified this sword with Excalibur, the, the legendary sword of Arthur endowed with magical powers. But uh, originally, the, the two were understood to be different in, in the legend. Either way, we're told that this sword that he pulls from the stone could only be pulled from the stone by the true king of England. It could only be retrieved by one who was worthy, who was rightwise king-born. And I trust many of you are familiar with this story, and if you are, you know that he alone, Arthur, is able to pull the, stone, the, stone, the sword from the grip of the stone, thus revealing his worth and his right to be the king of England. Well, today, as we continue in our series on the songs of the Bible, and as we're in Revelation, you can tell we're nearing its end, um, the song before us today isn't about a man whose worthiness allows him to pull a, a sword from a stone, But it is about a lamb whose worthiness allows him to take a scroll from the hand of God. We've we've been seeking over many months now, as I've had time in the pulpit, to consider the songs of the Bible. Not all of them, but, but many of them. We want to better aid our understanding and practice of singing in the church. What constitutes a good song? A lot of things like style, tone, key, and rhythm affect the quality of a song. But while these are important, the words that we sing are especially important. When we sing together each and every Lord's Day, we are teaching and admonishing one another. It is crucial, therefore, that the words to the songs that we sing are good, sound, and reflect true theology. The effort has been to note many of the things that we find in the songs of the Bible. We find things like songs of joy, songs of triumph, songs of lament, songs of hope, songs of deliverance. We've seen the might, majesty, and love of God. We've seen His power. We've seen His heart for the lowly and His wrath for the haughty. And here we are today in Revelation chapter 5. And As I mentioned a minute ago, we're going to pay special attention to verses 9 to 13, where the actual singing takes place. The scene where this song is sung uh, begins back in chapter 4. 
And there we, we read about the, the throne of heaven and the one seated upon the throne. He's, he's said to have the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. John, who's writing, then sees around the throne a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Also around the throne, there are 24 uh, other thrones, and seated on those thrones are 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne comes uh, flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Before the throne were burning seven torches of fire. Before the throne there was, he says, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And the intensity of the scene grows as his eyes light upon four living creatures, eyes in front and behind. One of them is like a lion, one of them like an ox, one with the face of a man, and one like an eagle in flight. Day and night, these creatures with the 24 elders praise the thrice holy God, the eternal God who created all things and is worthy to receive glory, honor, and power. It's a difficult scene to imagine, but, but as John sees it, his, he sees a scroll in the hand of the one who is on the throne. And an angel, a loud angel, proclaims who is worthy to open this scroll and break its seals. And to John's horror, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and look into it. It's, it's kind of like all the men trying to pull the sword from the stone with, with no success. One failure after another. All of humanity lined up. All of the created order lined up one after the other attempting to take the scroll and to break its seals to see what is inside. This scroll of eternity. The one that once opened brings judgment upon the earth with the inbreaking of forever. And no one is worthy And so at this point, John begins to weep. And he weeps loudly because no one was worthy to open this scroll. But then one of the elders turns to him and he says, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seals. And then as we turn with John and look, expecting to see this worthy conquering, mighty lion. The strangest sight meets our eyes. It is not a lion that he sees, but a lamb. A lamb meets our gaze. And this lamb is standing as though it had been slain with seven eyes and seven horns. And the lamb takes the scroll from him who is seated on the throne And the four living creatures and the 24 elders begin to sing. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. 
Then I looked, John says, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. And so as we consider this song this morning, the song of all creation, the elders, the living creatures, and everyone on the earth and in the sea about the worth of this lion, this lamb who is in the throne room. There are two things that I want us to see about his worth. First, in verses 9 to 10, we will see his worth as Savior. Second, in 12, to thir- 12 and 13, we will see his worth as Lord. And in case it isn't readily apparent, this conquering lion, slain lamb, are one and the same, the Lord Jesus Christ, the root of David. And so let's look to these two things with God's help. First, consider with me Christ's worth as Savior. And as we consider His worth, I want us to note three questions, to ask three questions and answer three questions from verses 9 and 10. First, how does He save? Second, whom does He save? And third, why does He save? So Christ's worth as Savior is demonstrated in the way that He saves, in whom He saves, and why he saves. So first, how does Christ save? Verse 9 tells us that the salvation comes to the people of God by the death of the Lamb. It was his blood spilled out that ransomed this people for God. Anselm of Canterbury, an Italian Benedictine monk, wrestled with the significance of the death of Christ in salvation at length in his essay, Why the God-Man. And in it, he's, he's asking, essentially, was it, was it necessary for Jesus to die? Couldn't He have saved us in some other way? The answer that he rightly comes to is that if God were to save any of us, It was, in fact, necessary for Jesus to die. Now, God did not have to save anyone, but if He were to save us, it must be through the perfect life and the sacrificial death of His Son. Why? If you want the long answer, read Anselm. If you're okay with the Cliff Notes version, here it is. For God to save humanity, Christ had to become man, live a perfect life under the law of God, die in the place of sinners because of two things. First, man was the one who had sinned against God 
And so it must be man who would pay for that sin. The unincarnate son couldn't do that. He had to become a perfect man who had no sin of his own, who could, for his fellow man, die. So that's one. Man, man sinned, so man had to die. Second, since all men born since Adam are fallen, man, his death would be useless. Every single one of us in this room, we would die, Go to hell, pay the penalty for our sins, and we would benefit no one else. And so man had to die, but man had to have someone else do it for him. So man had to do it, but he couldn't do it in his own right. So Christ became incarnate, the God-man, and therefore, as the perfect man, could lay his life down for his people. So Christ's worth is on full display here as Savior. Because if he were to save even a single person, he would be worthy of praise for all of eternity. Jesus said there is no greater love than that one would lay his life down for his friends. But let us not forget, Jesus didn't die for his friends. He died for his enemies. He makes us friends. But Paul tells us in Romans that Christ died for us while we were yet sinners, estranged from God. What love, what worth, what wonder that he would die for sinners such as us. Christ is worthy as Savior because of how he saves through giving up his own life. Second, whom does he save? Christ's worth as Savior is demonstrated in the the people that he actually saves. We just noted a minute ago that he, he dies for sinners, for his enemies, but specifically who are these people? The rest of verse 9 tells us. He ransomed people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. If the previous... Uh, Subpoint highlights the exclusivity of the gospel. Uh, that is the fact that, that we can be saved and reconciled to God through faith in Christ alone. This point, whom does he save, is about the inclusivity of the gospel. Jesus doesn't die for a small, homogenous group of but a few people. He doesn't only die for the rich, he doesn't only die for the poor. He doesn't only die for people in the West. He doesn't only die for people in the East or people in the North or the South. He doesn't die merely for a people of one particular skin color or one particular geographical location. He doesn't die only for the powerful. He doesn't die only for the oppressed. For whom does he die? He dies for people from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. People talk often about the scandal of gospel exclusivity. How judgmental they say it is that 
we might believe that a person can only be saved through belief in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But what about this? There are people rescued from hell by God from all walks of life from every place on earth. There is no place on earth that will escape, that can escape the reach of the gospel. There is no ethnicity that will not have some representation among the saints of God before the throne of God. There is no social strata or economic bracket or hemisphere or continent with people on it or part of the city or area of the country that is off limits to the saving reach of Jesus Christ. So my friends, this gospel offer is for each and every one of us. It doesn't matter who you are, where you have come from, where you live, what you have, what you don't have. If you are alive, the offer stands. The Lamb, standing as though slain, poured out His blood so that sinners like you and me, so that sinners like us might find forgiveness from sin in His death. So if you don't know Jesus Christ, the question is, will you have Him? Will you take your eyes off yourself and look to Jesus and live? And if you do, what majesty, what might, what wonder that Christ would die for you? Well, why does he save? Christ's worth as Savior is demonstrated in why he saves. Or perhaps we could put it another way, what does he do with this people that he saves? Verse 10 tells us that he ransomed this people and then what? Made them a kingdom of priests to God and set them on the earth to rule. Another way to ask it is what is salvation? He makes us a kingdom and priest to God and we will reign on the earth. Salvation is not primarily escape from hell. As wonderful as that is, it is not the ultimate focus in the Bible's description of salvation. And as we look to verse 10 here about why Christ saves this people, there are two aspects of salvation that I think should particularly sweep us off our feet. First is completely unfettered access to God. Second is perfect representation of God. In verse 10, we're told that we are made priests and we're made kings. As priests, we are granted access into God's presence. As kings, we are restored as image bearers of God in the work of extending His rule and reign in the earth. From the very beginning, this was the point. Adam was a priest and a king. Very quickly, from Genesis 1 and 2, I want to demonstrate this point. In Genesis 1, 26, God blesses Adam and Eve, his new image bearers, and he gives them dominion over the earth, over the fish of the sea, birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over everything that creeps on the earth. They were to reign on earth as God's vice regents. They were kings, reflecting the glory and the image of the great king. 
And then in Genesis 2.15, we're told that Adam was to work and keep the garden. This is his role as priest. He, these are the same two words, work and keep, in Genesis 2.15. The same two words that are repeatedly used in, Levitic, uh, uh, in um, Numbers rather, to describe the priest's role in the temple. Usually translated as something like guard and serve. Like Numbers 3, 7 to 8. So the priests guard, they would guard and serve in the temple. Adam was to guard and serve in the garden. He was a king, he was a priest. But through his disobedience, Adam ruined the life that he had, that his children would have and enjoy with God as kings and as priests. But Christ, the second Adam, redeems humanity and and reestablishes mankind in our purpose. And so salvation is not simply about escaping wrath, but it's about being reconciled to God, being brought back into His presence to serve Him in His temple and being sent out into the world to, to rule as His royal image bearers. And so... That is Christ as Savior. His worth as Savior. How does He save? By His own blood. Whom does He save? A people from everywhere on the planet. And why does He save? He saves a people to be priests and kings unto God forever. And that brings us to our second major consideration. is Christ as Lord. And there are three categories here that I want us to consider as we view this second part of the song in verses 12 to 13, which demonstrate Christ's worth as Lord. And those three things are His wealth, His wisdom, and His weight. First, in verse 12, we see that Christ is worthy as Lord in His vast wealth. Verse 12 tells us that the Lamb is worthy to receive power and might and wealth and For the sake of the alliteration, I sort of left this category just as wealth. But really we're talking about his sovereignty. I'm viewing wealth here as kind of a catch-all category that encompasses all of the resources at God's disposal and his power to use them. God is infinitely powerful and able to do all that he pleases. And he has the entire universe and really more at his disposal to do it. Kids, think with me for a minute about the catechism question. Can God do all things? Yes, the answer says. God can do what? All His holy will. Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Is there a task to which God might set His mind that He is unable to accomplish? No. There is no limit to His power to bring about His holy ends. And so we see in verse 12, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and might. And so, friend, are you, are you weak this morning? Are you feeling helpless? Are you feeling hopeless? Are you hurting? Are you aching? Are you in need of a strong king to come and deliver you? Are you poor? Have you run out of resources to continue in the race? Do you feel like giving up? Do you think about tossing in the towel? Is that your only move left? 
so would you hear this. You may be weak, but Christ is strong. You may be helpless, but Christ is a helper to the needy. You may be hurting, but Christ is healer. You may, your, your defenses may be down, but Christ are up and never failing. You may be spiritually bankrupt, but Christ is rich beyond all measure. There is no need of yours that he cannot meet. Would you look to him and find the healing and the help that your soul most needs? Second, we see Christ's worth demonstrated in his wisdom. Not only is he strong, but he is infinitely wise. He is worthy to receive power and wealth, but also wisdom. God not only has the power to do all his holy will, but he has the wisdom, the know-how to carry out his plans. In uh, John Steinbeck's Of Mice and Men, we read about two men, George and Lenny. Uh, They are two displaced migrant ranch workers who move from place to place in California in search of new job opportunities during the Great Depression. George is the brains. Lenny is the brawn. Lenny is very big. He is an imposing figure. But what's his problem? If you know the book, he doesn't know his own strength. At his heart, he's a big softy, but he's massive. And this gets him into a lot of trouble. Increasingly so, as the book goes on. If you've not read it, spoiler alert. One day, Lenny accidentally kills a puppy. He's stroking it, and he's, he's, he's trying to be gentle, but he just can't. And, and he, he kills it, and he, he likes stroking things that are soft. And, and so this woman, uh, in kind of in the mix, one day she, she lets him kind of start stroking her hair. And he's, he's just too strong. He's too rough. So he kills this puppy, and then he's, he's stroking this woman's hair, and, and she starts to get scared. So she panics, and then he panics. And instead of letting her go, he just he grabs on more tightly, and he eventually breaks her neck. He had all the strength that one could want, all the strength that a human person could want, but he lacked the wisdom to use it properly. Following the woman's death, George decides to kill Lenny with one shot to the head to keep him from hurting anyone else. It's sort of this mercy kill, I guess. And so is Lenny a picture of God? No. Is God some mighty king who loves us but doesn't know how to use his strength? Far from it. God's power is matched perfectly by his wisdom. Not only is he able to do all that he pleases, but he knows what is best to please. What is best to want to do. God knows it. Proverbs 8.22 tells us about God's work in creation. Uh, Wisdom personified says this, The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work. The first of his acts of old. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle in the face of the deep. When he made firm the skies above. When he established the fountains of the deep. When he assigned to the sea its limit. So that the waters might not transgress his command. When he marked out the foundations of the earth. Then I was beside him like a master workman. And I was daily his delight. Rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and delighting in the children of man. 
And so God in creation is perfectly wise. And in redemption, 1 Corinthians 1.18 and following tells us, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And in verse 25, he says, The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God stronger than men. God is strong, and God is wise. And he does everything he does perfectly, and he does it for his glory, and believer, he does it for your good. Christ's worth as Lord, then, who rules and reigns over us, is seen in his limitless power and his infinite wisdom. Well, lastly, we see Christ's worth as Lord displayed in his weight, in his glory. Verse 13 says that the Lamb is worthy to receive blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. So far, we've, we've kind of focused primarily on God's acts, his work, Christ as Savior. Christ the powerful and wise Lord to reign and to rule as he sees fit. But for this last point, I really want to highlight not so much what Christ does, but what he is or who he is. This heaping of praise upon Christ through words like blessing, honor, glory, and might really highlight the the weightiness of his person. Specifically, we see this in the word glory. Many of you notice that in the, in the Jewish mind, glory was something that re- referred to something that was heavy, that was weighty. In fact, the, the Hebrew word uh, that we translate as glory means heavy. It's, it's weighty. It's, it's weight. Jesus is worthy to open the scroll of eternity. Why? Because of the immensity of his person. If you put the entire universe on a scale and set Christ on the other side, there is no contest. He is worth so much more than all creation. This is what uh, C.S. Lewis depicts somewhat in his book, The Great Divorce. In the book, a bus takes a group of people on a tour of sorts of of hell and then heaven. And when they step off the bus in heaven, uh, the the narrator sees his fellow passengers in in the light of heaven and he notices that they are transparent, like ghosts, he says. He says they are ghosts. And then he notices that the grass doesn't bend under their feet. Even the drops of dew are not disturbed. And so he says, I, I then saw the whole phenomenon the other way around. As he tries to think about what happens. What's going on. He says, the men were as they had always been. As all the men I had known had been, perhaps. It was the light, the grass, the trees that were different. Made of some different substance. So much solider than things in our country that men were ghosts by comparison. 
He tries to bend down then and, and pluck up a blade of grass, but he fails. He tries to, to pick up a leaf and thinks he just barely gets it to move, but it's too heavy. He begins to walk around and the grass hurts his feet because he, in his mortal body, isn't fitted for heaven. He wasn't equipped to deal with the realness of the world to come. Christ's worth is seen in his weightiness, his realness, his glory. He is perfectly, completely real. His complete realness and eschatological density, if you will. The world for which we long, following in the steps of its maker, is far more real than this one. Brothers and sisters, Christ is worthy. He is weighty. He is more real than anything you have experienced in this life. Every pain, every sorrow, every hardship, agonizing as they are, are nothing in comparison to the weight and the worth of Christ. And those things... We know from other places in Scripture, 2 Corinthians 4 being one of them, they are preparing you to meet the Lord Jesus. One day we will stand on the grass of heaven and it won't hurt our feet because of the sufferings that we have in this life now are preparing us for the weight of the glory of Christ, which if we were to hold it in our hands would pass right through us. But one day we shall be made ready to be filled to the brim with the glory of Christ. Your Lord, your Savior who loved you, who gave himself for you, and who rules over you now. Sorrow, friends, lasts for the night. Joy is coming in the morning. In the Arthurian legend, King Arthur was worthy to take the sword from the stone. Well, friends, someone greater than Arthur is here. And he hasn't taken a sword from any stone, but he wields a sword from out of his mouth. And while eternity is calling, we have found the one who is worthy to open its scroll. And so I bid you, as the elders did, the elder did to the dear apostle, and as the Lord shall do to each and every one of his saints, as we read about in Revelation 7.17, the Lamb Himself in the midst of the throne will be our shepherd. He will guide us to the springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. With Him, friends, I bid you, weep no more. Would you please pray with me? Father, Your Word is weighty. It weighs us down in our sin. But when we look up to Christ, we call out for help. Your Word becomes no longer a weight and a burden, but it becomes strength. It becomes a path upon which to walk. It becomes light. And it leads and it guides us by the power of Your Spirit. And I pray that You would do that now from Your Word proclaimed as it has gone out. That You would drive it home. You would 
glorify yourself in our midst now and forever. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.